Welcome to the Temple University Press podcast, where you can hear about all the books you'll want to read next. My name is Gary Kramer, and I am the publicity manager at Temple University Press. In this podcast, we're going to chat with Rachel Schreiber about her new book, Elaine Black Uneda, the remarkable story of a Jewish activist who joined her incarcerated Japanese-American husband and son in an American concentration camp during World War II. With me today is Temple University podcaster Sam Cohn, who will interview Rachel about her biography, Elaine Black Uneda. Welcome, Sam and Rachel. Elaine Black Yoneda was the daughter of Russian Jewish immigrants who spent eight months in a concentration camp, not in Europe, but in California. She did this voluntarily and in solidarity, insisting on accompanying her husband Carl and their son Tommy when they were incarcerated at the Manzanar Relocation Center. Surprisingly, while in the camp, Elaine and Carl publicly supported the United States' decision to exclude Japanese Americans from the coast. Elaine Black Yoneda is the first critical biography of this pioneering feminist and activist. Author Rachel Schreiber deftly traces Yoneda's life as she became invested in radical politics and interracial and interethnic activism. Schreiber illuminates the ways Yoneda's work challenged dominant discourses and how she reconciled the contradictory political and social forces that shaped both her life and her family's. Highlighting the dangers of anti-immigrant and anti-Asian xenophobia, Elaine Black Yoneda recounts an extraordinary life. Elaine Black Yoneda is available through the Temple University Press website, and listeners can get 30% off with the code T30P at checkout. The book is also available online at Amazon and BarnesandNoble.com, as well as your favorite bookstore. Rachel, welcome to the Temple University Press podcast. How are you? Good. Thank you, Sam. It's great to be here. I'm glad, and we have a lot to dive into. My first question, you first read about Elaine Black Yoneda in a brief paragraph in a book on the Jews of San Francisco. What was it about that paragraph that prompted you to research her and to write a book of your own? That's a great question, Sam. Thanks for asking. Um, I think that when we hear that a Jewish woman spent time in a concentration camp in California, it strikes our ears as a... um, as a paradox or an impossibility, or at least as a surprise. And I know this because when I talk about the book and tell people that, I, re- I see that response. And it's the same reaction I had when I first read that line of how, you know, how could this be and how would that come about? And why, why was Elaine um, in this position? So before we get into the details of her life, what observations did you have about Elaine? How did you kind of identify with her? How did you admire, what did you admire about her? And what did she do that you questioned? The other part I should mention that caught my eye about Elaine when I first learned about her was her activism. And throughout the 1930s, she was a major figure in the Communist Party of the United States and a labor activist. Um, She was the only woman on the executive committee of the 1934 general strike in San Francisco, which is a very famous and important strike in US labor history. And she distributed pamphlets at that strike uh, that were titled, What to Do When Under Arrest. Um, So I am a historian who more typically studies the history of labor activism and print culture. Um, And so these were obvious connections to my longstanding interests as a historian. But I'll also say more broadly that I am interested in the immigrant experience. My father's an immigrant to the US. My mother is a first generation 
American. I think this is the vast majority of Jews who live in the United States um, have immigration in their in their past and in their history, whether post-war or the smaller, you know, those who came before World War II. Um, but so there's a lot, there are many connections to my family history, although she was, Elaine was different than my grandmother's. She would, she was, lived the, through the same kind of years of the 20th century. And I felt connected in many ways to various aspects of her life. Well, stylistically, your biography is organized into five parts of her life. Uh, let's start with her Russian Jewish parents, Molly and Nathan, who emigrated to New York and then later California. You write that they raised her in a secular home that was focused on labor rights. She was from an immigrant family during a time of anti-Semitism. So in, in your eyes, how much impact did they have on her life and her goals? They had an enormous impact on her life. Although like many teenagers, um, as a teenager, she was rebellious. So <clears throat> she grew up in a household surrounded by um, actually key figures in the labor movement whom her parents would have invite to the home and um, they would hold meetings in the home. And through her teenage years, she disdained all of this activity and the politics um, but obviously it had planted a seed somewhere deep within her that germinated. And as she um, was, she actually left high school to take various jobs. And once she started working, I think that she really saw some of the inequities um, of the differences between people who were wealthy and people who are not wealthy. She was through her parents, and now this is in Los Angeles at this point, um, affiliated with a circle of activists who were part of her social milieu. So she became um, a, a series of events, which I discuss in the book, activated her interest. And by the time she was, um, you know, by the time she was around 20, she had really come to embrace her parents' politics. Well, in contrast, while in California, Elaine became much more aware of and involved in the multiracial and multi-ethnic radical community. She had a political awakening after seeing police brutality and labor demonstrations. How did that further kind of ignite her passion for social justice, do you think? Yeah, those are the events I was alluding to. So, you know, there's a there's a moment when she there are a few moments when she is with her friends and dressed up to go out to dinner, but she witnesses firsthand police brutality against uh, unionists and other labor activists. And it really it strikes some chord in her where she realizes that what she's seeing is wrong. And it was in California. She also be, uh, began with the International Labor Defense Organization, sponsored by the Communist Party of the United States. She became not just active, but a speaker and a leader. And it was through her work at the International Labor Defense that she met Carl, who eventually became her husband. What attracted her to this work and even to Carl? Elaine actually met Carl before she became involved in the International Labor Defense. And actually, she was married at the time to her first husband. Um, but they both individually in their memoirs and their papers speak about the first time they saw one another. And they just, there seemed to be some attraction from some kind of spark from the moment, really the first time that they saw one another that didn't develop into a full-scale romance until later after Elaine had left her first husband, et cetera. Um, Elaine was a really natural public speaker my assessment is that she had a very tenacious sense of right and wrong. 
And when she saw that people were being wrongly accused or wrong, badly treated, she really, she couldn't, she couldn't accept it. And so she really was very motivated to defend other people. So in many ways, what's interesting about Elaine is that although she was this major figure in the Communist Party, she herself acknowledged that she was not she was not a deeply theoretically informed person about Communist Party ideology, et cetera. She didn't deeply read, you know, the texts on the matter, which, by the way, were books that surrounded her in her home that she grew up in. But she really seemed to have just a kind of innate distaste for seeing the rights of others violated. I think that she and Carl really shared that. And I think they saw that in each other from the start. And and also about Carl, I want to say, Carl and Elaine had, for their time, quite an egalitarian type of relationship and, and eventually marriage, which was very different from that to her first husband. Her first husband had much more traditional gendered expectations of what Elaine as a wife, who she should be, who she would be. And it just didn't, it never, that never worked for Elaine. And that I think ended up being the end of that marriage. And from the start um, and throughout their lives, she and Carl really um, were much more of equals and that's how they treated each other. And I think it is also an element of their mutual attraction. Rachel, just sticking with Carl for a moment, the bombing of Pearl Harbor led to him being incarcerated in an American concentration camp with his son, Tommy. Elaine insisted on accompanying them, which is quite noble, and they spent eight months in the camp, but things were difficult for them. What can you say about her experiences? What was Elaine's life like in Manzanar? It, I think it's important to note that Carl went to Manzanar voluntarily. He was misled to believe that he would have a job there, and he only realized once he got there that he was actually not a volunteer, but a prisoner. This was a moment of great confusion. And I think that's a, also an important mindset for us to try to put ourselves into in that time frame, you know, looking back. So policies and procedures were not yet clearly developed. I mean, what does it mean to exclude an entire population from a region of the United States and tell them that they needed to report to a camp um, on the other side of the Sierras in an unknown place? And so it, Manzanar was one of the very first camps. It was initially opened as a relocation center. And as soon, soon after Carl had gone there, Elaine learned by a radio announcement that Tommy, that her three-year-old son would need to go as well. And she insisted on accompanying Tommy because Tommy was a three-year-old who was, um, he was asthmatic. He was, he, his health was, was poor. And she was really deeply concerned about his well-being, um, and she wanted to accompany him. At the same time, I think that Elaine also, I think it would have been hard for her to be away from Carl. And though this isn't what she says was the case, my conclusion that I've drawn from, you know, from really thinking it through and reading about it and, and the work and the research that I did is that as much as she wanted to accompany Tommy and she was genuinely concerned for Tommy's health, she also wanted to be near her husband. Rachel, this might be kind of a, a tough question to answer, but how do you think you would have fared being in, in someone like Elaine's position? 
<laughs> you know, it's so interesting, Sam, that you asked that question to me because sometimes I think that so much of my work and research as an artist, as a historian, is really grounded in my wondering that same question. Like, would I have had the fortitude that my subjects have had? I've, I, yeah. I have done a lot of work about um, Jewish women who were resistors during World War II, who fought in the resistance, et cetera. So I, I seem to have this ongoing interest in women who faced significant challenges with a lot of um, confidence and with a lot of resolve. Um, so I, I'm not sure. I mean, that's, you know, of course, it's certainly a question I've, I've thought about. I mean, as a historian, one tries to understand her subjects by trying to inhabit their, you know, trying to think about what I would do in their shoes. Um, but the thing that is really fascinating to me, deeply fascinating, and, and I do write about this in the book, about Elaine is that I, do, I think that they're, Elaine and Carl's response to the orders for exclusion and incarceration were actually not in keeping with their personalities or maybe I shouldn't say personalities, but if we look at the, if we look at Elaine's activism throughout the 1930s, it was always constantly about questioning authority. She seemed to have no problem standing in front of a police officer and telling them they were wrong or standing in front of a judge quite often and challenging them. You know, she, people, people thought she was like a naturally born lawyer. And then when, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and the incidents occurred that led she and her family to be at Manzanar, there was an acquiescence that just, that just seems out of character to me. And that is something I really, really have puzzled over. And I think that in the end, what I wanna say about that is that I really believe one element of biography is not trying to resolve people's contradictions. You know, we, we don't, none of us live our lives in like, sure. you know, with pure cohesion where every single decision we make makes sense and adds up. And so, you know, I'll just repeat again, it was a very confusing time and, you know, mm -hmm. people didn't know what was happening. And, you know, if we think to like, say the beginning of this recent crisis, we've all lived through in the pandemic, right? If I think about March, 2020 and, you know, us wiping down our groceries with disinfectant wipes, which turned out to be like not the thing we needed to do. Uh -huh. In moments of crisis, there's a lot of confusion. And, and it's, it's, I said this recently to a friend, um, as a historian, the central problem a historian has is that we know how things turned out. And that's, and so as historians, what we need to do is try to tell the story of the past without knowing, without, you know, putting aside the conclusion that we know will eventually happen. So how do you suppose her life might have been if she had not joined her husband in Manzanar? Uh, that's a really good question because um, it's really a question about where her career would have taken her, is what mm -hmm. I'll say. I mean, throughout the 1930s, women were very active in the Communist Party of the United States. And this was a change from women's roles prior to the 1930s. This was a deliberate decision that the party had made um, to embrace women and actually and to embrace some social justice causes in the United States around people of color in the South, et cetera. So what we'll never know, because not only of 
the incarceration of Japanese Americans because of the events of World War II, but also because of the, the Red Scare that followed that, where the Communist Party and its place in American society would completely change, um, is how not only Elaine, but other women like her who had risen to ranks, how their careers would have progressed beyond that. Um, I mean, career was a real focus for her. She was, she was a very unusual woman in that in the early 30s, she moved from Los Angeles to San Francisco to take a bigger position with the ILD, with the International Labor Defense, leaving behind the daughter from her first marriage in Los Angeles. And if you, if you really think about for a woman in the early 1930s to make that career choice and leave her daughter in the care of her parents, you know, it seems quite unusual. So from that, we can surmise that her career mattered to her a whole lot. Um, but her career was completely interrupted, disrupted, and, and you know, taken in a different direction because of this. So that, that's, I think, the biggest way in which her life, you know, it, it shifted the course of her life. Sure. And then after they were released, Elaine and Tommy moved to the San Francisco area and worked with labor unions while also fighting to get Manzanar recognized as a memorial site for redress and reparations to Japanese Americans. You also indicate the couple regretted their behavior in the camp. Can you kind of discuss that? Yeah, well, first of all, if I may correct part of that, um, part of that of narration of events, um, to say they were released is, is I, I suppose that's true, but it's maybe not quite how I would put it. Um, they were subjected to violence at Manzanar after Carl, Carl left because he had, he had insisted even before he was incarcerated that he wanted to join the US Army, which he did. And so he had left for basic training and Elaine and Tommy were remained behind at Manzanar. And um, there was a full scale revolt at Manzanar and there was a lot of um, inter intra intra camp politics and their, their lives were threatened and they weren't the only ones. There was a group of about, a, there was a small group of people who's who, in it, families where the men had gone off to the army and other people in the camp were very um, angry about that. And so they were, they were removed from the camp as part of a way to avoid further violence. And that led to their ability to insist that they be allowed to go to San Francisco. I, 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 if I may, Sam, I wanna stay on this point for one moment because what, I, course, wanna, yeah. what I wanna really insist upon is that yes, Elaine was a Jewish woman in a concentration camp in California but it's also important to say she was a white woman in a camp and she was in a white woman in a camp of Japanese Americans. And that gave her a certain level of privilege. And that might've contributed to her ability to, to get herself and Tommy back to San Francisco in a way that wouldn't have been possible for others. And I always want to remind my readers of that and remind us of that, that she, she, she was in a place of privilege relative to the other people who were at Manzanar. As far as Aline regretting her decisions and her actions during the time of um, the exclusion and incarceration, hers and Carl's, this was something that I was really curious about and really um, looked very carefully <clears throat> in both of their archives to find evidence of, because as I said, it was so, it seemed, it's, it's just, it seems so um, exceptional to me that they had acquiesced, not only acquiesced, but I think, it, I think it'd be a surprise to many people in contemporary 
Times to know that a whole segment of Japanese Americans, mostly through the Japanese Americans Citizens League, supported the idea of excluding Japanese Americans from the coast. It's, I, I find that very surprising and hard to reconcile. And so when I knew that they were later in their life involved in this um, effort for redress and reparations, you know, I, I was very um, attuned to trying to understand what, what had changed in their state of mind. And there's, there's not a whole lot to indicate this, but there are a couple of places where they have, um, where they did write and acknowledge in some public way that they were wrong. They were wrong to have, to have agreed to it. Um, and I, you know, I think that's again, back to what we had discussed earlier that, you know, people, people's minds change about topics over the course of their life. Um, in the time of the war, they were as communists, so deeply anti-fascist that they, in, in a, again, in a moment of chaos did what they felt was necessary to help the effort to defeat Hitler. And that was, that's how they framed that narrative. But, um, but yeah, it was a change of mind when they went to, um, when they eventually later in their life got on board with the um, efforts for the memorial site to be established for the reparations. And here and there, we get glimmers of them acknowledging that they had made the wrong decision in the 1940s. You describe your book as a feminist biography. Elaine made inroads as a woman at a time when it was difficult for women to have power. How do you think Elaine's life relates to today's experiences of both racism and xenophobia? Well, I think that um, I think that sadly we don't seem to have learned very much. So you know the fact that um, the fact that we still treat immigrants with a lot of xenophobia, the recent histories of separating families at the border, the incidences of anti-Asian and anti-AAPI violence in the wake of the pandemic, all of that indicates to me that we still um, have this reaction to those who we construe as the other. Um, And it's it's sad and, and a terrible irony in a country that was built by immigrants, that's made up of immigrants, that we don't seem, we keep seeming to repeat these same things. Now, Rachel, Tommy passed just as your book was published. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship with him as you worked on the book? Yeah, sure. I mean, I feel incredibly fortunate to have had the opportunity to meet Tommy. Um, when I first was working on the book, I didn't know. I actually didn't know at that point if he was still alive and it took me some time to um, to find him, but I eventually was connected to him. And remembering that Elaine died in 1988. So there's still plenty of people around who, who did know her. And a number of the historians who worked on this history, whom I met in California, um, knew Carl, knew Elaine, and of course knew Tommy. And so eventually I was connected with Tommy and, and I spent just a lovely day with him at his home in, in California, um, talking to him. He's a great, he was a great storyteller. He was a very kind and generous person. And um, sometimes I, it took a little effort to get him back on the topic of his mother. There were many things that we were able to talk about. And um, he was very he was very interested in the fact that I was writing a book about his mother. He of course wanted to know why and how I'd come across her and, and so forth. So it, it's, it's truly regrettable that, um, that he won't be able to read the book um, once it's, once it's out, but, but all of us, all of us can and will. Um, and I know that um, 
it, it, I think that it's a, it's a tribute to his mother and will be a tribute to his memory. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate you taking your time. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. And for our readers and our listeners, uh, Elaine Black Yoneda is available through the Temple University Press website, and listeners can get 30% off with the code T30P at checkout. The book is also available online at Amazon and barnesandnoble.com, as well as your favorite bookstore. 